Welcome to Words to Live By, a podcast series hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. Each week, we will share some of the wit and wisdom of Ronald Reagan. In essence, Words to Live By, made up of radio addresses and speeches he delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. While the 2024 election is still 15 months away, Republican candidates are entering into the fray faster than Clayton Kershaw can throw strikes, which begs the question, so how did Reagan do it? What was his strategy? What was on his mind? In this podcast, we'll listen to some of his strategic speeches related to his 1980 campaign. Yeah, as as you know, he was also a candidate in 1976 and marginally in 1968. But today, we're going to focus on 1980. And well, do you remember why he ran? Let's listen. During the summer and fall of 1980, there were many problems facing our nation. The tragic neglect of our military establishment, high unemployment and an ailing economy, the continuing expansion of communism abroad, the taking of more than 50 American hostages in Iran. But to me, none was more serious than the fact America had lost faith in itself. And here's why he believed he was qualified after leading the state of California for eight years. It's not easy for me to boast, but during those eight years in Sacramento, I think we made the state government less costly, smaller, and more businesslike. We were able to upgrade the quality of people attracted to government and cut its growth to a rate at or below the level of California's population growth. We made the bureaucracy more responsive to the public, and we began to return some of the power and taxing authority usurped by the state from local communities back to where they belonged, the local level. Classic Reagan. His confidence was running high. After leaving Sacramento in January 1975, he was absolutely determined to stay in touch with the American people by delivering radio broadcasts on every single subject affecting us. Actually, he was offered a gig to do a point-counterpoint with Eric Severide on CBS. You probably remember him, but he rejected that idea. Instead, he elected to go with his old friend, the radio. To be able to carefully define his positions or ideas, to clarify them all for America. No wonder they called him the great communicator. He started communicating long before he ever made it to Washington. Here's an excerpt from his last radio address, October 25th, 1979. This is my final commentary. I'm going to miss these visits with all of you. I've enjoyed every one. Even writing them has been a lot of fun. I've scratched them out on a yellow tablet in airplanes, riding in cars, and at the ranch when the sun went down. Whenever I've told you about some misfortune befalling one of our fellow citizens, you've opened your hearts and your pocketbooks and gone to the rescue. I know you have, because the individuals you helped have written to let me know. You've done a great deal to strengthen my faith in this land of ours and its people. You are the greatest. Sometime later today, if you happen to catch me on television, you'll understand why I can no longer bring you these commentaries. This is Ronald Reagan, and from the bottom of my heart, thanks for listening. So now, let's listen to what else happened in 1979. Good evening. 
I'm here tonight to announce my intention to seek the Republican nomination for President of the United States. I'm sure that each of us has seen our country from a number of viewpoints, depending on where we've lived and what we've done. For me, it's been as a boy growing up in several small towns in Illinois, as a young man in Iowa trying to get a start in the years of the Great Depression, and later in California for most of my adult life. I've seen America from the stadium press box as a sportscaster, as an actor, officer of my labor union, soldier, office holder, and uh, as both Democrat and Republican. I've lived in an America where those who often had too little to eat outnumbered those who had enough. There have been four wars in my lifetime, and I've seen our country face financial ruin in the Depression. I've also seen the great strength of this nation as it pulled itself up from that ruin to become the dominant force in the world. To me, our country is a living, breathing presence, unimpressed by what others say is impossible, proud of its own success, generous, yes, and naive, sometimes wrong, never mean, and always impatient to provide a better life for its people in a framework of a basic fairness and freedom. You know, someone once said that the difference between an American and any other kind of person is that an American lives in anticipation of the future because he knows it'll be a great place. Other people fear the future as just a repetition of past failures. Well, there's a lot of truth in that. If there's one thing we're sure of, it is that history need not be relived, that nothing is impossible, and that man is capable of improving his circumstances beyond what we're told is fact. Now, there are those in our land today, however, who would have us believe that the United States, like other great civilizations of the past, has reached the zenith of its power, that we're weak and fearful, reduced to bickering with each other, and no longer possessed of the will to cope with our problems. Much of this talk has come from leaders who claim that our problems are too difficult to handle. We're supposed to meekly accept their failures as the most which can humanly be done. They tell us we must learn to live with less and teach our children that their lives will be less full and prosperous than ours have been, that the America of the coming years will be a place where, because of our past excesses, it will be impossible to dream and make those dreams come true. I don't believe that, and I don't believe you do either. That's why I'm seeking the presidency. I cannot and will not stand by and see this great country destroy itself. Our leaders attempt to blame their failures on circumstances beyond their control, on false estimates by unknown, unidentifiable experts who rewrite modern history in an attempt to convince us our high standard of living, the result of thrift and hard work, is somehow selfish extravagance which we must renounce as we join in sharing scarcity. I don't agree that our nation must resign itself to inevitable decline, yielding its proud position to other hands. I am totally unwilling to see this country fail in its obligation to itself and to the other free peoples of the world. The crisis we face is not the result of any failure of the American spirit. It's a failure of our leaders to establish rational goals and give our people something to order their lives by. If I'm elected, I shall regard my election as proof 
that the people of the United States have decided to set a new agenda and have recognized that the human spirit thrives best when goals are set and progress can be measured in their achievement. Now, during the next year, I shall discuss in detail a wide variety of problems which a new administration must address. Tonight, I shall mention only a few. More about Ronald Reagan's 1980 run for the presidency right after this message. And we'll find out what he's going to highlight. Can you guess? The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org give. Now, back to the story. Before I go back to his announcement, here's part of his thought process. I wanted to be president, but I really believe that what happened next wasn't up to me. It was up to the people. If there was a real people's movement to get me to run, I said I'd do it. But I was going to wait and see. Finally, there were so many people calling me, asking me to run against Carter, I said I'd do it. As the campaign for the presidency got underway late that summer in 1980, Americans for a second year in a row were trying to cope with the ruthless effects of double-digit inflation, which was eating away at their savings, their paychecks, and their way of life like a horde of locusts. Interest rates were over 15%, depriving millions of American families of a chance to buy a home. In countless communities, the unemployment rate, like inflation and interest rates, was in double digits. Militarily, our nation was in danger of falling behind the Soviet Union. The Soviets were modernizing their fleet and their ground and air forces on a massive scale, I was told. Yet on any given day, up to half the ships in our Navy couldn't even leave port because of a lack of spare parts or crew. And half our military aircraft couldn't fly for lack of spare parts. The overwhelming majority of our military enlisted personnel were high school dropouts. We were told there was a malaise in our nation and America was past its prime. We had to get used to less, and the Americans were responsible for the problems we faced. We were told we would have to lower our expectations. America would never again be as prosperous or have as bright a future as it once had. Well, I disagreed with that. Yes, we had problems in 1980, a lot of them of our own making back in Washington. But I disagreed with those who said that the solution was to give up and be satisfied with less. I saw no national malaise. I found nothing wrong with the American people. We had to recapture our dreams, our pride in ourselves and our country, and regain that unique sense of destiny and optimism that had always made America different from any other country in the world. If I could be elected president, I wanted to do what I could to bring about a spiritual revival in America. Remember the misery index? President Carter had come up with the idea to attack Gerald Ford. What he had done is he added together the rates of inflation and unemployment. 
At one point, it was around 12%. But by the time Carter left office, it was more than 20%. And by 1980, Carter never, ever mentioned it again. So let's get back to the president's announcement. He's going to give some details, so let's listen. No problem that we face today can compare with the need to restore the health of the American economy and the strength of the American dollar. Double-digit inflation has robbed you and your family of the ability to plan. It's destroyed the confidence to buy, and it threatens the very structure of family life itself as more and more wives are forced to work in order to help meet the ever-increasing cost of living. At the same time, the lack of real growth in the economy has introduced the justifiable fear in the minds of working men and women who are already overextended that soon there will be fewer jobs and no money to pay for even the necessities of life. And tragically, as the cost of living keeps going up, the standard of living, which has been our great pride, keeps going down. The people have not created this disaster in our economy. The federal government has. It has overspent, overestimated, and overregulated. It has failed to deliver services within the revenue it should be allowed to raise from taxes. In the 34 years since the end of World War II, it has spent $448 billion more than it has collected in taxes. $448 billion of printing press money which has made every dollar you earn worth less and less. At the same time, the federal government has cynically told us that high taxes on business will in some way solve the problem and allow the average taxpayer to pay less. Well, business is not a taxpayer. It is a tax collector. Business has to pass its tax burden on to the customer as part of the cost of doing business. You and I pay the taxes imposed on business every time we go to the store. Only people pay taxes, and it is political demagoguery or economic illiteracy to try and tell us otherwise. The key to restoring the health of the economy lies in cutting taxes. At the same time, we need to get the waste out of federal spending. Now, this does not mean sacrificing essential services nor do we need to destroy the system of benefits which flow to the poor, the elderly, the sick, and the handicapped. We have long since committed ourselves as a people to help those among us who cannot take care of themselves. But the federal government has proven to be the costliest and most inefficient provider of such help we could possibly have. We must put an end to the arrogance of a federal establishment which accepts no blame for our condition cannot be relied upon to give us a fair estimate of our situation and utterly refuses to live within its means. I will not accept the supposed wisdom which has it that the federal bureaucracy has become so powerful that it can no longer be changed or controlled by any administration. As president, I would use every power at my command to make the federal establishment respond to the will and the collective wishes of the people. On the foreign front, the decade of the 1980s will place severe pressures upon the United States and its allies. We can expect to be tested in ways calculated to try our patience, to confound our resolve, and to erode our belief in ourselves. During a time when the Soviet Union may enjoy nuclear superiority over this country, we must never waver in our commitment to our allies, nor accept any negotiation which is not clearly in the national interest.
we must judge carefully. Though we should leave no initiative untried in our pursuit of peace, we must be clear-voiced in our resolve to resist any unpeaceful act wherever it may occur. Negotiation with the Soviet Union must never become appeasement. For most of the last 40 years, we've been preoccupied with the global struggle, the competition with the Soviet Union and with our responsibilities to our allies. But too often in recent times, we've just drifted along with events, responding as if we thought of ourselves as a nation in decline. To our allies, we seem to appear to be a nation unable to make decisions in its own interests, let alone in the common interest. Since the Second World War, we've spent large amounts of money and much of our time protecting and defending freedom all over the world. We must continue this, for if we do not accept the responsibilities of leadership, who will? And if no one will, how will we survive? The 1970s have taught us the foolhardiness of not having a long-range diplomatic strategy of our own. The world has become a place where, in order to survive, our country needs more than just allies. It needs real friends. Yet in recent times, we often seem not to have recognized who our friends are. This must change. It is now time to take stock of our own house and to resupply its strength. But there remains the greatness of our people, our capacity for dreaming up fantastic deeds and bringing them off to the surprise of an unbelieving world. When Washington's men were freezing at Valley Forge, Tom Paine told his fellow Americans, we have it in our power to begin the world over again. We still have that power. We, today's living Americans, have in our lifetime fought harder, paid a higher price for freedom, and done more to advance the dignity of man than any people who ever lived on this earth. The citizens of this great nation want leadership, yes, but not a man on a white horse demanding obedience to his commands. They want someone who believes they can begin the world over again. A leader who will unleash their great strength and remove the roadblocks government has put in their way. I want to do that more than anything I've ever wanted. And it's something that I believe with God's help I can do. I believe this nation hungers for a spiritual revival hungers to once again see honor placed above political expediency, to see government once again the protector of our liberties, not the distributor of gifts and privilege. Government should uphold and not undermine those institutions which are custodians of the very values upon which civilization is founded, religion, education, and above all, family. Government cannot be clergyman, teacher, and parent. It is our servant beholden to us. We who are privileged to be Americans have had a rendezvous with destiny since the moment in 1630 when John Winthrop, standing on the deck of the tiny Arbella off the coast of Massachusetts, told the little band of pilgrims, we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword throughout the world. A troubled and afflicted mankind looks to us, pleading for us to keep our rendezvous with destiny, that we will uphold the principles of self-reliance, self-discipline, morality, and above all, responsible liberty for every individual, that we will become 
that shining city on a hill. For our country's future, I pledge you my every effort. I ask for your prayers and your support. I believe that together we can keep this rendezvous with destiny. Thank you, and good night. Thank you for listening. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Don't forget to subscribe to the Words to Live By podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of Words to Live By come out every Tuesday. Like what you hear? Check out our A Reagan Forum podcast featuring great speeches delivered at the Reagan Library. New episodes drop every Thursday. And... Don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan 40 on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher.